On this episode, I'm in the room with Dr. David Murray discussing why Christians should live optimistic lives in such a pessimistic culture. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 13. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me online at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at, at @ryanhughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If this is your first time listening to In the Room, the goal is pretty simple. I want to bring you into the room for conversations with pastors, authors, and artists. I want to invite you to listen in on what I hope are interesting conversations with a diverse group of people. Now, today I'm in the room with Dr. David Murray. He's the pastor of Grand Rapids uh, Free Reformed Church and the professor of practical theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He's written a fascinating and helpful new book called The Happy Christian, 10 Ways to Be a Joyful Believer in a Gloomy World. In our conversation, we discuss the unfortunate stigma surrounding mental health in the church, why our minds matter so much in the pursuit of happiness, and how we can live optimistic lives without losing a realistic grasp on the world that we live in. There's a lot to love about this conversation and this man. For instance, he's Scottish, so everything he says sounds amazing. I think you're really going to enjoy this and find it very helpful. So come on in the room for my conversation with David Murray. All right. Well, Dr. Murray, thank you so much uh, for your time. And uh, I want to start talking a little bit about uh, your uh, background for people who may not know you, may not be familiar with you. So based on uh, the beautiful accent that you're going to grace us with for the next few moments, I, I guess that you're not from Michigan originally. And so where are you originally from? Well, as you can tell from my accent, Ryan, I'm from Texas. So <laughs> yeah. Um, no, originally from Scotland, where I was born and brought up, and where I was a pastor for about 12, 13 years before coming to the USA in 2007. And what brought you out here in 2007? Well, I was very, very happy in Scotland. I had a lovely congregation to pastor up in the Northwest Highlands. I was a little bit involved in training some of our students for the ministry, but um, just on the whole, just a very happy pastor. When I was asked to come and train future pastors here at Puritan Reform Seminary in Grand Rapids, and initially I said no because I was just very content where I was, wasn't looking for anything sure. else, and I was also very afraid of the the response of my congregation as well, I have to be honest. But anyway, over about an eight-month period, I gradually came to realize it was the Lord's call and it was a wonderful opportunity to um, maximize influence in the world for good. And uh, so I came here in August of 2007. Been okay. very happy. Feel very blessed to be here. So you've been a pastor for a while because you're serving now as a pastor in Grand Rapids as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was came here 2007 and really just uh, on the whole full-time seminary professor doing the usual conferences and things like that, but really missing pastoral ministry all the time, and yet not really seeing how it would be possible to combine them. But um, there's a local church here that I'd been preaching in every month, and they'd asked me a couple of times to consider becoming the pastor again, just, no, I, I can't add this on. A few things happened, some health issues, which meant I was going to be staying at home much more, not traveling so much, and um, my courses were getting to a fairly good stage of development that didn't need quite so much time on them. So last summer, that summer of um, 2013, I, I became the pastor there, and I've just been loving it. It's, it's a lot of work, but yeah. we, we've got a good pastoral team. I'm not the only guy on 
the team. And did you, were your parents believers? You grew up in a Christian home? Yeah, um, my parents were converted in their early 20s um, in the Baptist church. That's where I was raised and brought up. With, as far as I can recall, it was a very happy church. But some difficulties came in. I, I'm not, I still do it to this day, not quite sure what, but my father, he didn't at the time know an awful lot of theology, but he knew there was something wrong. And he was a dentist at the time, and he was doing the teeth of a, a Presbyterian minister. Yeah. And uh, this guy persuaded him to come to his church. So we did. And that was quite a, that was quite a radical contrast because the Baptist church was very cheery, happy, kid-friendly. And then this Presbyterian church was very kind of, it was very, very conservative, traditional. Okay. It was very kind of dark and gloomy and long and boring. So that wasn't a very good move for me in my early teens, and it didn't have a very good impact on me spiritually. Although I believe it was a better church on the whole to go to theologically, but not not great for a young guy. Okay. And then, uh, so you have been uh, a pastor in two different churches, one in Scotland and then now one in Grand Rapids. Yeah, I left school early. I left a year early. I had no interest in academics. Um, I either wanted to play soccer for one of the professional teams or make a million. Okay. Preferably <laughs> both together. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, my build was never going to let me be a soccer player, so I decided to devote myself to becoming a millionaire. And uh, I was in a business where it was quite easy to make quite a bit of money at that time. It was finance. It was the late 80s, the Thatcher, Reagan years. It was a very prosperous time. And I, I worked very hard at it. And there were lots of rewards. But gradually, sort of, you know, the Lord basically embittered it all to me. It showed me the emptiness of it, the ugliness of my own life, the greed, the selfishness, the vanity. And probably over a period of a year, really turned my heart away from that pursuit and um, the money madness of it all. And um, I was converted to Christ in my early 20s then. And very soon after, I felt a call to the ministry. I, I'd left my job because I, I felt I couldn't continue to do it ethically, morally, but didn't really know what to do. Ended up in Eastern Europe for a year just before the Iron Curtain came down. And that was a very impressionable time. Met a lot of wonderful Christians, and really the Lord used it to just show me the this is your life, David. Pursue it and serve me, preaching the gospel. And ended up having to go to college and seminary for the next six years. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I first became uh, familiar with you through Joe Thorne. And uh, he speaks real highly to, about you, and I know you've been a huge blessing to him. And so I've been reading what you've been writing for well over, I think, two years now. And one of the things I've really appreciated from a distance is the extent to which you've thought about and written about the issue of mental health. Yeah. Um, but one question I had was, you're a seminary professor and a pastor, so why the interest in so much instruction for you around this issue in particular? Yeah. Um. There's a personal dimension to this. When I left seminary, I was very ill-equipped to be a counselor, especially to people with any mental health issues. We just did not get good training anyway had, was pretty unbalanced. And so I left and went into the ministry in the Northwest Highlands of Scotland, which actually has a very high incidence of um, depression, even suicide, uh, mainly, I think, because of the the climate, yeah. very gray, dull, especially through the winter. And I was very, I was just completely at sea. I, I, I was no, of no help whatsoever to people. 
I basically saw everything as sin. You know, you're a Christian, you're meant to be joyful, therefore, where's the sin? And, and of course, as a result, very few people came to me for counseling as well, because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> word gets out. Yeah, yeah. But um, my wife ended up with quite a severe depression around about our third and fourth children. Uh, and again, it was a time of what? My wife, you know, happy, cheery, chirpy, yeah. Shona. Uh, very temperamentally upbeat, um, and then as well, Shona, you know, my godly wife, who you know puts me in the shade uh, as regards sanctification. This just it kind of smashed all my caricatures, and with the help of a, an older pastor and a doctor, um, began to see the physical and uh, genetic, uh, social um, factors in depression. Began to read a lot more. And began, of course, to be a help to my wife and not a hindrance. Yeah, because <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine that 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 any wife loves hearing like, "Well, your depression <laughs> problem is because you're a sinner." So just repent. Yeah. Like a couple times in that conversation, and it's just not going to go well. Well, it, it was probably even worse, Ryan, because I was saying things like, "I mean, look at all that you have. You've got you know lovely kids. You've got <laughs> you've got me. <laughs> what more do you need?" Anyway. That's right. So it's very patient, but yeah, just began to understand that. The holistic nature of the problem, there can be a spiritual element, of course, but there's genetics, there's climate, there's um, times of life, especially in a woman's life, um, There's there can be physical issues. And so reading, studying, talking, and then beginning to actually be of help to people around about and also people detecting a new sympathy and um, eventually did a series on it in my congregation which again opened many doors into people's lives. There's a huge instance of mental health issues in the church. Most of it's underground. Yeah. And which um, I, I have like I think one of the challenges that uh, one of the most significant challenges that we face with the issue is the extent to which mental health issues are prevalent and then the shame and stigma that surround them, because the result tends to be a huge sum of people who are suffering, but they're suffering in silence. And so I wonder, I mean, you've obviously done a lot of work on this, but why do you think that mental health still has the stigma and the shame? Like, I've never talked to someone who had cancer that felt shame because they had cancer. And so I wonder, why do you think that stigma, and I don't think that's just a church thing, I think that's a culture thing. So why do you think there is that stigma? I think it's actually worse in the church. Yeah, uh, believe it or not. But yeah, there's a historical reason. Obviously, it, there's been very little understanding of mental health issues historically. It's only really in the last twenty to thirty, forty years that there's been much more understanding. Uh, you know, prior to that, there was um, a, a terrible social stigma, uh, a lot of association with the demonic and things like that, mistakenly. And then you have. Um, some issues as well because like with cancer you've got a test you know you can go and get a blood test you can't get that or until recently you couldn't get that for anything like schizophrenia or depression although that's changing as well um, and I think thirdly a theological problem and, and that's the main thing in the church and that's this dualism where we separate the body from the soul and you know if it's not clearly a bodily problem then it's a soul problem and, you know, mental health, it's to do with emotions, feelings, thoughts. Therefore, that's a spiritual. It's nothing to do with the body. Therefore, you know, what is the sin? So for these reasons, I think, you know, in the church especially, there's been an additional stigma uh, because of this dualism 
Uh, whereas I believe the Bible teaches us to approach humanity in a, in a much more holistic rather than a divisive way. Yeah. Uh, seeing the different dimensions, but also how they interact, that you cannot be unwell physically without it affecting you spiritually and, and vice versa. I think as well, there's um, an increasing recognition of the of the genetic factors in depression, and also some of say things like early abuse has been shown to actually change the the shape and um, structure of the brain. So there there's there's some social issues, historical issues, medical issues that are gradually growing an understanding and I'm hopeful as well in the church as a, there's an increasingly holistic rather than a dualistic approach to this. Yeah, well I, I mean on a on a practical note how just just speaking in the context of the church as most of the people who listen to this are pastors and ministry leaders and Christians how how can we do a better job of really killing that stigma and working through the shame so that we're actually able as you said to be helpful and not a hindrance. I think we do need to work on our theology, and we also need to work on our uh, explaining the Bible, especially parts of the Bible that are a bit darker. Uh, you know, you have the accounts of Elijah, Job, Jeremiah, the Lord himself, of course, in the midst of his terrible sufferings, and you a lot of fear and anxiety, without sin in his case. Um, I think we can also talk about our own vulnerabilities as well. The figure for society at large is about 20%. I mean, it varies depending on how you classify depression, mental illness, but something between 15 20% of um, the adult population has or will have uh, a mental health issue. Therefore, that's a lot of pastors that could be talking about that. Also, I think just to um, make our churches places where people can be vulnerable and be understood on this issue, not victimized and further guilt heaped upon their heads. There's a lot of education that needs to go on. It's beginning to happen, I believe, but there's a lot of work to go on as well. And and, and there's a lot of corrective work. It's not just we've got a, a blank slate. There's actually a long history of damage being done through pastors, professors, and others teaching this in a very dualistic way. And that's just very deep within. We like simplicity, and it ends up being simplistic, Right. this, this division. We don't like complexity, but that's what this issue is. It's a complex issue that requires complex approaches. Yeah, I really like your point. I mean, I, I think that one of the most important things that pastors can do, especially if they struggle with mental health issues in any way, uh, and, and leaders in general, is just to be as vulnerable and transparent. And I think it's a really good sanctifying thing, not just for the people, but for the pastor or leader. Like, I mean, throughout Scripture, we're commanded to humble ourselves. And one of the ways that we can humble ourselves practically is to be transparent about our deficiencies, don't you think? And I, I think that that really kills that pedestal that either pastors put themselves on or people put the pastor on to acknowledge, like, I'm, I'm su suffering and struggling through this just like you are. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and we can go back to our friend, our mutual friend, Joe Thorne, who I think has been a wonderful example of this. Who, Absolutely. You know, passed through a time of at least anxiety, maybe depression as well, but certainly deep anxiety that he's been very open about and that he's 
talked about, written about, continuing to do so. And and I just see Joe's ministry having, you know, incredibly multiplying effect through that. I've counseled a number of pastors whose counseling ministries have just taken off after they have gone through this and admitted it. Um, So I I think if we we view it as not uh, um, a threat to us, but as an opportunity there may be, you know, initially some people who are, you know, what? The minister's depressed? You know, I thought he was a, a Christian, never mind a minister. Right. But, you know, it, that's the opportunity there for education, for smashing caricatures and for using it as a teaching moment in, in the life of the church. And, we're, you know, what we're trying to do here is build for future generations as well. Yeah. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If so, I want to ask you to help me make it as easy as possible for other people to find it on iTunes. And to do that, we have to increase our visibility, and that happens through listener reviews. So do me a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, take 60 seconds, log on to iTunes, and leave a short review. It's that simple. Such a small price to pay for this great content. Every review makes a huge difference, so keep spreading the word, and thanks so much for your support. Now back to the conversation. Well, I want to I want to talk a little bit about kind of on the positive side of this your new book, The Happy Christian. You've you've written a book called Christians Get Depressed Too, and then uh, I like that you even joke in the new book that you thought about calling this one Christians are, can be happy too, and uh, and I like the way that you've attacked this issue from kind of both sides. And as I was thinking about our conversation coming up and and uh, reading through the new book, I thought about this uh, short passage in Lloyd Jones' book, um, Spiritual Depression, where he says. Uh, So often we give the impression that we are dejected and depressed. Indeed, some would almost give the impression that to become a Christian means that you face many problems that never worried you before. So looking at things superficially, he says, the man of the world comes to the conclusion that you find happier people outside the church than inside the church. And he goes on to say how we grossly and grievously misrepresent the gospel of redeeming grace. And so what I really love about the new book is like clearly... Like what you're hitting on is not a new issue, but I think you approach the topic so practically that it's that that it's extremely helpful. So in the intro, you write, um, "I've written the Happy Christian to help you live a powerfully optimistic and meaningful life in an increasingly pessimistic culture." So optimism and happiness seem to be two kind of fundamental themes throughout this book, and I wonder what the connection is in your mind between optimism and happiness. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, I, I was becoming increasingly known as the depression guy, so <laughs> yeah. I, wa- I want to go out known as the happy guy. Yeah, nobody's inviting you to parties anymore. <laughs> no one wants to hang out with you. Well, I, I, I mean, I read, the, I wrote the book partly because the depression book helps people out of the pit, you know, gets them to sort of ground level. But I think we've got to believe that Christianity can do more than that. Yeah. Um, and that it can actually lift us and cause us to flourish and thrive, and that that be one of the messages of uh, Christianity. And I see, when I read the Bible, uh, there is a pessimism in the Bible about human nature, which we mustn't deny. You know, that's going down the Joel Osteen route. Yeah. Um, but there's also a tremendous optimism in the Bible, not really about human nature, but about God and the gospel and the way that can impact and transform human nature and human situations and, and human history. So I, th- I think optimism 
is a, a fruit of happiness. Uh, we we build into happiness, and one of the results of that is that we have a much brighter, hopeful outlook for ourselves, but also for um, the church. Yeah, and you mentioned um, uh, Joel Olstein, and so I wanted to hit on something for a second. Ask this because you there is all this, even the, the title, the Happy Christian, like that's the title alone sounds like a book that could be in any self help area in Barnes and Noble. And I actually want to applaud you for calling it something like that, because I think it speaks to this base human desire, which I think is what some of the best self-help writers, like all their, like they're, they're offering a non-substantive answer to a really significant legitimate problem. And so I like what you've done and that you've just connected with this simple base need in people, but you offer substance in the book. But I am curious because with all this talk about being positive, some might mistake your message with the sort of of like the, I mean, I don't mean to like turn this into like bagging on Joel Olstein, but, but some people could mistake it for this vanilla spirituality that's so popular, like that think positive and you can will good things to yourself, all that. And so that's nonsense. Um, and it's worlds away from what you're working toward. So how would you say that what you're working toward and calling for is different than say a prosperity theology? Yeah, let's call it that prosperity theology. We can kind of depersonalize yeah. it that way. Yeah. I have to be honest, Ryan, I did not call it the happy Christian. Oh, well, someone uh, is smart at your publisher. It was a good well, idea. It was. And I actually resisted it okay. when it was first suggested because of the associations. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm a professor. I'm not supposed to be like, you know, <laughs> right. light and fluffy. So there was a pride thing coming into it as well. Do I really want to be, you know, that guy? Yeah. Um, but, you know, eventually I kind of thought, well, you know, that is what it's about. And why let the world um, steal yeah. happiness? And um, so I thought, let's go for it. And hopefully people will go past the front cover and, uh, you know, begin to see that there is a substance to it. We've actually, very glad to say, J.I. Packer's endorsed it as well. So we put some of his words on the front page, on the front cover. Yeah. You know, j just again to sort of say, you know, take a second look, you know, don't yeah. just. But yeah, I think we're in great danger of overreacting to the shallow, superficial, temporary happiness that's on offer in some areas of the Christian church and certainly in the world. And so we, we, we have this tendency as Christians to kind of go to the other extreme and either deny happiness or try and distinguish it from joy. That's, that's quite a common thing I've seen. But what struck me when I was, I've been researching this for a while, I've, I've got an ebook coming out with this book called A Thousand Quotes on Happiness. And it's full of reformers, Puritans, covenanters, you know, the most solid, substantial martyrs even, who saw this as a fundamental message of the Bible. And I think that's what makes this different to what's on offer in other places. I hope that from beginning to end, it's clear that this is not some whip you up, you know, self-hypnotism and pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of stuff, but this has got to be founded on doctrine, on truth, and on the practical um, ethics of the Bible. Because one of the things I've tried to do in the book is cover a number of areas of ordinary life, like work, like marriage, just like the way we think, 
um, our future hopes, things like that, and show how um, this this theology of happiness is actually it's worked out, and even in the working out of biblical ethics, there is a joy and a happiness in that. Again, you know, you think people think, oh, you become a Christian, you you know, for, forget happiness for the rest of your life, or you've got to you know go down all these miserable routes of obedience. And I think what the Bible and I hope the book shows is actually this is the path of blessing. And even I include quite a lot of science in the book from the current research on happiness, of which there's a lot. And it's amazing what an overlap there is that's been found. They don't say, oh, this is actually in the Bible. Right. But what they're finding and proving is, without realizing it, that God's word and God's ways are the, the way to happiness. I, I really like your word about the overreaction piece. Uh, and one of the things that I've tried to be increasingly careful about, just even in preaching, is to not, just because a word or a doctrine or an idea has been misconstrued or twisted, I don't think the answer is to just do away with it, but to redeem it by teaching it biblically. And I really think that that's going to be the great benefit of this book, is that you've done that. Rather than reacting and um, and and just pushing it away, you've you just are really bringing the Bible to bear on a significant issue. And so that's great. You just mentioned the mind a second ago, and your approach seems to be throughout the book this argument that to some extent we are what we think. In fact, that's a mantra that, that runs a couple times in the book. And so maybe just share a couple things about why does the mind matter so much? I think I came to realize this mainly in dealing with depression. Uh, in my little book on Christians Get Depressed, I highlight 10 false thinking patterns. And it's amazing when you start looking out for these, how much you see them in yourself. Yeah. Um, and you realize increasingly how what you're thinking, how you're thinking, these habits of thinking are actually having very uh, strong impacts on your emotions, on your feelings, on your view of self, of the world. And therefore, if if these thoughts can lead you down the way, they can lead you up the way as well if we get the thoughts right. And and again, here's where we have to distinguish between biblical Christianity and just the art of positive thinking. Because in the art of positive thinking, Norman Vincent Peale's approach, basically you hypnotize yourself. You tell yourself, you know, I am the best preacher in the whole world and thousands of people are going to be converted through me. And you just repeat that, repeat that, repeat that. And there's no basis in reality. Right. <laughs> but Whereas the Bible does say, hey, you can lift your emotions and your thoughts, but let's do it with truth, with what is real and what is substantive. And yes, it's, it's going to take us longer, uh, but it's, it's going to be more enduring and it's not all going to just you know, collapse in a heap of vanity at the end. Yeah, no, that's good. And, and the way that you structure these chapters is interesting because you, you kind of each chapter follows uh, a formula that you argue will add up to a change of mind and thus more happiness if it's applied daily. And so I was wondering, I'm gonna, I want to give a couple of examples and see if maybe you could just give us some cliff notes. Obviously, there, there's so much packed into each one of these chapters, but just the cliff notes on these. So the ch- chapter one, uh, the formula is, and if I'm saying this wrong, I just want to go on record as saying I suck at math, and so you can correct me. <laughs> um, but, but the formula is that facts are greater than feelings, uh, equals positive. Mm-hmm. And so yep. maybe just share a little bit about why are facts greater than feelings and, and what exactly are, are you trying to communicate in that chapter? 
Yeah, I'm saying facts should be greater than feelings, uh, but often they're not. In many Christians' lives, we are we are dictated to by our feelings. We let our feelings control our our uh, lives, and really the 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 battle that this book calls this chapter calls us to is to get facts back into the dominant position, which again brings us back to truth. It brings us back to theology. You know, you take, for example, somebody who's feeling um, doubtful about their salvation, who's lacking in assurance, questions their salvation because they're feeling a bit sad and down. Well, the way to change that is to get into the Word of God, to search out facts, look for marks of grace and use them to argue yourself into a more um, realistic, truthful view of oneself and therefore lift one's emotions as well. And so that the feelings follow in the train of facts. And that's the way to sustain this more uh, biblical, positive approach to life. Yeah, no, that's good. And one of the things I try to tell my church frequently is that what we feel doesn't dictate what's real. And uh, I have a friend who who says... um, that feelings are a really great caboose. They're just a really lousy engine. And, uh, and I think that's a really, I mean, you just use the, uh, the illustration of an, of a, of a, of a caboose and it's just not too many of us are led by our feelings and that's such a dangerous and common way, sadly yep. to live. So super helpful chapter. Uh, another formula that you have in the book is that, uh, done is greater than do, which I love mm. that equals positive. So maybe a, a, just a couple notes on that. Yeah. I was very tempted to make that the first chapter in the book because it's really the fundamental of the book, and that is the whole area of justification, how we are saved. I didn't make it the first chapter in the book because, I don't know, I just felt that a lot of people say, well, I know this already and maybe not go any further. So I want to give some some maybe more... um, not novel, but um, enticing. Yeah, no, I get um, that. I think that's good. Kind of hooks, but I didn't want to leave it to the last chapter either. Right. Um, so this, the whole idea here is if we are living our Christian lives on the basis of our doing, well, that's one sure way to sink. And a lot of Christians are. That you know, the 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 most dominant word in their minds and hearts is doing, serving, um, you know, getting involved in mission and evangelism, good works, charity, and all that. Um, However, if that is the big thing in our lives, we really are doomed to guilt and um, discouragement, depression, and questioning of our salvation. And so again, it's not saying done and have nothing to do with doing, but done first is get that the most dominant thought, idea, in the mind. I'm justified. It is finished. There's nothing to add. There's nothing to improve to Christ's person and work. First thing in the morning, through the day, last thing at night. And that not only in and of itself creates a peace and a joy and a gladness, but it also provides the fuel for the doing that is sustainable and that will not create guilt along the way. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I mean, you're such always, a, I appreciate how balanced you are. And so you're not like down on doing. Um, it's just about order. You know, we what we do is out of what Christ has done. And that's, uh, 
yeah, super helpful. So last one, um, how many chapters are in their book? Are there 10 formulas? It's, 10. it's a 10, lot yeah. of math, man. It's a lot of math. <laughs> so this, the last one I wanted to point into though, was that Christ is greater than Christians. And I yeah. just want to hear a little bit about like, what did you, what did you mean by that? Well, as I've gone around uh, people in my congregations and outside the church, what became clear to me was that one of the most discouraging, depressing areas of life is Christians themselves. And it's, you'll know this, Ryan, being in the in the pastorate, it can be really depressing at times. Yeah. And however, if Christians, again, are our dominant thought, that's what's filling our lens then yes, we're we're not going to fly through this life. We're just going to have a constant source of discouragement, disappointment, even from the best. And therefore, again, it's just saying, you know, don't forget other Christians, don't not think about them, but get this order right. Christ, first of all, the perfect, the perfect, holy, good uh, Christ, and again, keeping Him front and center in every area of our lives, I think that will change the way that we view other Christians as well. And I've tried to give a number of practical tips in that chapter on how to even use the faults of Christians uh, for our own spiritual benefit uh, and in a way that will lead us to Christ and not away from him. Yeah, I think that one is going to be... uniquely and particularly encouraging for pastors and for ministry leaders, um, because it is difficult. We are sin, sinful and sinners, and we have to deal with sinful people on a regular basis. And so I remember that there was a, a stat that went around for a long time, and stats are dangerous, I know, but you know they say the average pastor leaves his church or leaves the pastorate because of six people in the church, huh. regardless of the size of the church, which is pretty interesting. Uh-huh. And, uh, and so I just, I think that for pastors to keep in mind that really our men, and this is true for Christians, but uniquely for pastors, our work and service in the, in the church is simply the means by which we serve Christ first and foremost. And so I think that that will really be, I mean, it's encouraging for me just to hear that. And I think it'll be encouraging for others. Um, so people have to get this book really, really good. Um, last thing, a question I wanted to ask you before I, I asked you some, some questions that came in on social media for you, which is always fun is, um, <clears throat> I know that you, uh, obviously with all the talk of optimism and being positive and happiness, the reality is the world in general is in pretty rough shape. So people are overwhelmed, life is hard, suffering is real. So how can we be both positive and realistic about the fact that both sin and that, that sin and suffering do exist in this world? Because I know what you're not calling for like this, this blindness to like everything is okay, nothing bad really happens. You're not arguing for that, but how do we do both of those things? Right. No, I'm not I'm not calling to blindness, but I am calling actually to a much more disciplined filtering. Hmm. Uh, and I'll come to that in a minute. But in the last, in the conclusion of the book, I do really take on sin and suffering head on. And again, try and show that how God can bring good even out of the worst sins and sufferings. Having said that, in the chapter on media, I do challenge the, the Christian and the church uh, to 
be a lot more careful in what we let into our eyes and ears. Just because we can know about everything that is going on in every part of the world, it doesn't mean we have to know. That's good. And I think many of us are being um, just dragged down really deep just because of what we are choosing to let into our eyes and ears. Choices that previous generations did not have. And in many ways, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying um, we shouldn't read the news, we shouldn't surf the internet or anything like that. But I do think we should be very much more aware of the impact of this upon our souls, upon our emotions, upon our thinking, upon our bodies even. And know ourselves and our limits so that we do not let all that's going on in the world have a long-term depressing and disturbing effect upon us. And, and everyone's got a different level there. You know, some people are, are called to know everything that's going on in the world. You think of somebody like Al Mohler, Russell Moore, you know, that's their callings. And God has obviously given them a very strong minds. And they seem to be able to maintain a remarkable cheerfulness in the midst of it all. But many of the rest of us are not called to that. And certainly many, you know, non-pastors, non-Christian leaders, they're not called to that. Um, and so... Everyone has to learn their limits, be able to detect when they are letting too much of the world into their lives in a way that's not being counterbalanced by the hope of the gospel and communion with Christ. And uh, that's been something I've been very aware of myself, especially with all the war, the mass slaughters and things like that. I've got to a point in many cases where I just read the headlines. Yeah. And just in what I need to know, not everything I can know, because I... I owe my wife and my children a degree of cheerfulness and hope. I owe my congregation that as well. So this is a challenge to each of us to get the balance right there. Yeah, I love that term, disciplined filtering. I'm going to think about that some more because I, I, I like the way that you stated that. And, it, you know, there there was a day and an age where only God saw and knew everything. And, uh, and you know, we just, one of the downsides probably to <clears throat> social media, the internet, 24-hour news cycles is that we're just privy to so much more of the suffering that's going on in the world. So I think that's a really good encouragement. Um, so one of the things I do on the podcast is uh, before I'm going to interview someone, I put out on social media who it is, what we're going to be talking about, and I ask for questions. And so I got some questions in from people on the internet that I wanted to, uh, to pose to you. For some reason, uh, you know, Joe, Joe, Joe Thorne and I are good friends. He felt the need to put like 15 questions for you on Facebook, which is pretty annoying. And he, he must need to just interview himself, you himself. <laughs> so you can take that up with him. But one of his questions that was a really great one was uh, related to burnout, which I know you've really uh, helped a, a number of people with. So related to burnout, what do you think is the number one or maybe the top few dangerous mistakes that people make in ministry that leads to burnout? The number one mistake is cutting back on sleep. Huh. Uh, every pastor I've counseled with burnout, um, that's been the major cause of it. Um, cutting back on sleep, an irregular sleep, uh, so that even when there is sleeping going on, it's being done at such irregular hours that the body's completely out of rhythm and routine. And if there's one thing that science is showing us increasingly is, you know, God has made us with certain rhythms and he's made us as in his image, who is the God of order, that we thrive most when there is order, routine and discipline in our lives. So 
I think all the science of sleep that's been um, produced in the last few years as well is extremely helpful in this. So that is the number one area, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Related to that on Facebook, uh, Aaron Carr um, asked, what connection do you see between Sabbath rest and being a happy Christian? Yeah, absolutely vital. I've got a little bit on that in the done greater than doing chapter. Okay. And I think it's a special challenge for pastors, of course. Um, But for myself, my wife has been a tremendous help in forcing me to have that full Sabbath a week. Um, In my early ministry, it was a Monday. Now it's more like a Saturday because I'm working in the same day, Monday to Friday. I know when I haven't done it that the next week I'm not thriving uh, personally or even as a pastor as I normally would. Okay. Um, Alex Gonzalez on Facebook asked, uh, and this is in the realm of mental health again, what practical steps can pastors take to lead people through mental health issues? And you've talked about that a little bit, I think, already of just being um, practicing disclosure, practicing vulnerability, um, not just, uh, you know, kind of giving a better theology uh, of, of mental health and all that. So you've answered all that. But I thought this was an interesting piece of that question, which was how can how can pastors say safeguard themselves so that in the midst of dealing with and, and, and shepherding people that are struggling in so many different ways, how can they do that in a way that they don't lose their own minds and yeah, hearts definitely. in the midst yeah. of it? <laughs> I know. Yeah. If you don't want to be counseling lots of people with depression, don't write a book on depression. Oh yeah. I can't imagine. <laughs> but I think the key is to have a team approach to this. this is something I always encourage our students here to do. No pastor can do this on his own. And I always say to pastors, you know, in your first few months in a new congregation, get out in the community, start making inquiries, find sympathetic doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, nurses, social workers. They don't necessarily have to be Christian, but at least sympathetic to Christianity. They're not going to work against you. Um, but to build that team approach so that you can do the spiritual part of it, and maybe some very practical things, but that you also have somebody that maybe helps them retrain their thinking patterns, somebody that deals more with the diet, nutrition side of things, um, and and just share the burden. Yeah. And don't try and do it all on your own. That's good. A follow-up on that, that's my question, is uh, you know, one of the things I get asked on a regular basis when, when we've encouraged someone to, because we're pretty quick to refer, you know, we, we know like what, what we're capable of and what we can do, and then we, we've tried to have a team approach like you're talking about at Redemption. But uh, one of the questions I get pretty frequently is, is does the therapist that I need to go, that I'm going to go see, do they need to be a Christian? And if you're saying <clears throat> maybe not exclusively and necessarily, what does sympathetic look like to, to Christianity? Like what, what, what would you encourage? Help, help me better, yep. you know, counsel people in that. Yep. You know, when I would talk to a, a, a therapist, I would I would want to know that they're not going to deny something like guilt and sin. Okay. Um, I would want them to. That's that's a spiritual issue. That's something for you and me to deal with. But you know, if you think of the basics of just um, negative thinking patterns, um, so you know, somebody. So, for example, a mother burns the dinner one night and you know immediately concludes man i'm utterly useless at everything 
Right. Well, a therapist can come in there and say, well, let's look at the evidence opposed to that in that day. What else did you did you get the kids out to school? Did you make other meals? How much ironing did you do? Um, you know, who who did you call that day? You visited a senior down the road. And right. so it's just, OK, yeah, there's that and that. OK, well, OK, maybe I'm not quite such a disaster after all. Yeah, maybe I you just know? can't cook. Maybe it's just that. <laughs> maybe we just made one mistake. <laughs> right. So it's not like you burned a kid. It was yeah. just that it was just dinner. Yeah. Or you take somebody that you know has it maybe childhood abuse and, and so they feel a lack of self-worth mm-hmm. value. They're very um fearful around uh, authority figures. Again, a therapist can be very helpful there, again, just in providing contrary evidence, helping to think beyond their own personal experience, showing the kind of stats in the wider world. So it's really just a we have to try and carefully separate the spiritual from the cognitive in some areas. And, you know, you and I, Ryan, we're not dealing with mental health issues every day. There are people, that's all they do every day. They can hear people talk and within a few minutes, they know exactly the kinds of words they need to hear. And, you know, as long as that therapist is not going to work against me as long as he's going to communicate with me, keep me informed, keep me updated so that we're you know going in the same direction. Again, I would count that as a very critical part of the uh, this puzzle. Then then I, I'm very happy to use the expertise of people. Okay. Now that's really helpful. Uh, last question. This one came in on tw- Twitter and uh, it's a very personal one. person wanted to be anonymous um, and this one hit me close to home because I've experienced this in my own family. But the question was, what can a family do to support a depressed and suicidal loved one? Uh, specific to this situation, uh, the person is a new believer and doesn't believe they're saved anymore because they don't quote unquote feel the way they felt that day. Mm. So this is, I mean, obviously a very pastoral one, but um, what, what do you do to support a family member who is, who is depressed and has spoken of uh, suicide? It's a very serious situation, Ryan, and it, it needs, in my view, a professionals involved. Again, you and me, we make a few of these in the course of our whole lives, you know, a, a suicidal situation. Um, we don't know ourselves very skillfully how to discern between what's just you know words and what's reality um so i would always get you know at least a doctor involved in a situation like that hopefully somebody that's you know trusted by the family um mental health if if at all possible as well but the first port of call there for me as a doctor if the person is really an imminent danger of doing harm to himself i think again you have to call in law enforcement and you know these are these are horrendous steps to take. They're going to have horrendous consequences. But what's even worse is not doing anything, right? Which is what happened once in my own life, and it did end with a suicide. Yeah. So you know we have to really recognise our limitations. Uh, recognise there are people who have tremendous experience and insight in these situations, and and bring them in early and and not uh, hope for the best. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a very serious situation. I think the danger is always for us to go into denial or minimizing. For myself, I'm going to go maximizing, even at the risk of overestimating. Yeah, no, that's a good word. 
All right. Well, I'm uh, so thankful for you and for uh, your ministry and for the new book, The Happy Christian. It's out February 24th. And uh, thanks so much for uh, your time today and for taking the time to write it. it. Really, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. God bless you in your ministry and in your podcasting. Thank you. I love Dr. Murray's courage and care in pretty much everything that he does. The Happy Christian is just another example of his commitment to helping Christians experience fuller lives in Christ. Mental health has deeply impacted my extended family, so this is a topic I'm really passionate about, and I'm thankful for people like Dr. Murray who are willing to help us experience the lives that God made us to. Now, when you're done listening to the podcast, I'd really encourage you to head over to Amazon and pick up The Happy Christian. And don't forget, you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at at Ryan Hughley and also on the blog at ryanhughley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We're going to be back in just two days with episode number 14 in my conversation with Barnabas Piper. He's the son of Pastor John Piper, and we're going to discuss his first book, The Pastor's Kid. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you, and thanks for listening.